0: Welcome to episode 70 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. In February 2024, Pluto published an exciting, provocative new work of political theory by HLT Kwan. The book is called Become Ungovernable, an Abolition Feminist Ethic for Democratic Living, and it's the latest release in our Black Critique series. Revealing the mirage of mainstream democratic thought and the false promises of liberal political ideologies, Kwan offers an alternative approach, an abolition feminism drawing on a kaleidoscope of refusal praxis, and on a deep engagement with the black radical tradition and queer analytics. Angela Davis describes the book as phenomenal, offering us possibilities for rescuing the concept of democracy from its fatal entanglement with racial, heteropatriarchal capitalism. So, high praise indeed, and we're excited to have HLT Quan on the show this month to talk about some of the themes of her new book. HQ is in conversation here with Professors Barbara Ransby and Tiffany willoughby Herard, who is guest-chairing the discussion. They explore topics such as radical love, transformative justice, and ungovernability in the South African context, including during the struggle against apartheid. As usual, podcast listeners can get 40% off the book for the next month. Simply use the coupon podcast at the checkout on PlutoBooks.com. So, once again, here are HLT Kwan, Barbara Ransby, and Tiffany Willoughby-Herard on Radicals in Conversation.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Tiffany Willoughby-Herard, and I'm an Associate Professor of Global and International Studies at the University of California, Irvine and Professor Extraordinarius in the Chief Albert Latuli Research Chair at the University of South Africa. I am excited and really thrilled to be talking with Dr. Barbara Bransby and Dr. HLT Kwan about the new book published by Pluto, Become Ungovernable, An Abolitionist Feminist Ethic for Democratic Living. It is an absolute delight and opportunity to have a moment with you all. I think so fondly of HQ around the scholarship that she's produced, but also someone that I've co-authored with, I've co-edited with, and that I've chaired dissertation committees with. HQ is the first person I send new poetry about political economy to. She's the first person I call when I need to ask, can you assist me in training somebody working on white violence or somebody working on neoliberal token systems of racial democracy? And so you are a dear friend. And also uh, she is a professor of justice and social inquiry in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State, an affiliate faculty in African and African-American studies, Asian Pacific American studies. Women's and Gender Studies, and the Sydney Poitier New American Film School at ASU. With research and teaching focus on radical thought and praxis, feminist consciousness and activism, utopian thought and speculative living, data justice, and the Black radical tradition, Dr. HLT Kwan is a powerhouse. In addition to being the author of Become Ungovernable, she is also a filmmaker who collaborates with Professor C.A. Griffith, including producing and directing three feature-length documentaries, Mountains That Take Wing, Angela Davis and Yuri Kochiyama, A Conversation on Life, Struggles and Liberation in 2009, America's Home in 2014, a film about gentrification and displacement in Puerto Rico, and Queer, Broke and Amazing, 2022, a film on LGBTQ people in the United States and their struggles for economic justice. In 2020, Quan was the editor-in-residence for the social justice-related blog Praxis, featuring more than 40 unique essays from writers all over the world. She and C.A. Griffith co-founded Quad Productions, Q-U-A-D, a a nonprofit media collective in 1999, through which they have produced over a dozen short and three feature-length documentaries, all focusing on various social justice campaigns globally. Professor Kwan has been an educational volunteer for the college program at a federal prison in Arizona for more than 15 years. I know by now your ears and neck must be very hot listening to all these accolades, (laughs) but it's important to talk about where we come from and the kind of consistent, unnamed, often unpromotable, invisible labor that we do as scholars. And I appreciate you and I love you and I'm proud of you. Dr. Barbara Ransby, who I know mostly from catching sight of her moving really fast across American (laughs) Studies Association conference halls, and also from Critical Ethnic Studies Association in Chicago over a decade ago, where I was able to experience who she is as a scholar by moving through the actual physical space that you've created in downtown Chicago as a training center where people can come and learn about political work and about social justice. I also have been able to train in the context of a really dispirited and despair-driven California African-American studies, your work on Ella Baker in ways that have transformed what Blackness can mean and what the imagined possibilities are here in California. And so I'm so grateful to be in conversation with you. Dr. Barbara Ransby is the John D. MacArthur Chair and Distinguished Professor in the Departments of Black Studies, Gender and Women's Studies, and History at the University of Illinois at Chicago UIC. And what I always say to my students about Dr. Ransby is that she is probably the most interdisciplinary historian that I know. She also directs the campus-wide social justice initiative, a project that promotes connections between academics and community organizers doing work on social justice. SJI is currently hosting the Portal Project, a floating symposium on social, racial, (laughs) and environmental justice involving nearly 200 artists, activists, and scholars. You don't take on big projects without bringing in lots of people. So anytime you encounter an academic that does the heavy lifting of asking for collaboration with many people, you know you're dealing with somebody serious. Dr. Ransby is a graduate of Columbia University and the University of Michigan, where she was a Mellon Fellow. She is the author of two award-winning books, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision from 2003. Nislanda, the large and unconventional life of Mrs. Paul Robeson in 2013, and also the author of a book published by University of California Press in August, 2018, entitled Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. Again, it is part of my own feminist practice to begin with talking about who we are and how we come to be in this place. Now we should sing your praises. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For for many of our, our younger people, simply knowing that having careers like the ones that you have made, I don't mean just the scholarly careers, but having careers of meaning is very important. So these kind of like social intellectual history moments are, they're really important. Okay. So let's get into this amazing text that we've come here to talk about, uh, Become Ungovernable.
2: I I do want to echo your songs of praise for HQ. You know, there are not very many people who can send you basically an 800-page manuscript and you say, of course, I'll read it. (laughs) But I did say, of course, I'll read it because uh, HQ is not just a colleague, not just a scholar and filmmaker, uh, but also someone who shows up and builds political and intellectual community. You know, the book is a gift, and it is a building block of political and intellectual community, you know, forcing us to look at some very hard questions, asking us questions, being provocative, being mischievous, you know, sparking curiosities. And so it's almost hard to figure out where to wade in But, you know, if I were to ask a question, I think one thing that sat with me when the manuscript first came to me and I sat with the cover, you know, the cover was one word. It was tyranny. That was the title. And the title changed. So I guess I want to ask in the process of honing and thinking and massaging a manuscript, which you put a lot of time and effort into from what it was when I first got it, to what you will share with the world. That migration from tyranny to becoming ungovernable, what was that like? What's the gap gulf between those two titles, if there is one? Um, and what was your process of thinking of, here's what I think, now here's how I want to share it with the world?
3: That's an amazing question. Thank you very much, Tiffany and Barbara. It means a lot to me that in this moment we get to have this conversation. I know you both are extraordinarily busy. and to the other accolades that, that Tiffany has been singing, uh, and you too, Barbara, I would just say that I have good teachers, and you two are some of the best teachers I have ever had. And you are teaching me still with, with this question, right? How do we travel in this work? I always imagine the, the project as part of a larger intellectual marshalling against tyranny. So we need to be talking about tyranny. And, of course, as a theoretical project, I have been thinking about governability and becoming ungovernable for a very long time, in part because in political science, not only is there an obsession with governing and governability, but there is a very dominant view that being ungovernable is nonsense that ungovernability as a concept is nonsensical. So, in another piece that I've written, I had sort of explored that a little bit. And so, my question is what is it about this field that is so obsessed with order and governing at the same time that it does it marshal its theoretical resources to essentially say there is a way of being that is not acceptable and that is becoming ungovernable? Part of the work what I've tried to do was to show how, in many ways, their machination, theoretical and scholarly machination that are in place to weaponize this idea of ungovernable. A people, a community, uh, once deemed as ungovernable, they are then be available for all sorts of violence and mischief. So if a community is targeted as, as troublesome or meddlesome then they are justification for annihilation, ultimately. And just as importantly, they are deemed as unworthy, not worthy of social investment, not worthy of intellectual contribution, not worthy of all of the social and political and economic resources. And so I think the manuscript is sort of trying to push these two ideas, I suppose. And to be honest, I'm going to be very frank here, I don't know anything about marketing, and I really don't know, especially about my work. Yes, I'm a media producer, but I think I traffic in ideas and communities and people. I don't know how to sell products. And quite frankly, that was a recommendation of Pluto's. And I liked it because become ungovernable suggests a kind of urging. And we are in a terrible moment. Uh, We are in a moment where we have to dig very deep to find courage to speak up, because in my, however, short, long life, I have never witnessed people being afraid to speak out against war or genocide. And so I think that it's good to add to however small the effort, add to the larger effort to find courage to speak out against injustices and tyranny. And so becoming ungovernable is a more active kind of urgent. Call as opposed to simply against tyranny. Does that make sense?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to jump into this question because you use the word nonsense, like being ungovernable is nonsense. And I'm really curious about what is it about sense, right? So if one thing is nonsense, what is it about sense as a tool for analyzing the world versus? being subjected to the world or versus having to see the world through the sacred or the cosmologies or just things that don't always make sense and don't always add up. I'm really hoping you'll share with me some examples that drove you to think as if nonsense
3: matters. Well, so that's just it, isn't it? Like depending on who you are and what text you read, what is considered sensibility could be extraordinarily violent and cruel and not helpful. If you were reading the books and looking into different kind of archive, the kind of archive scholars like Barbara have gone through Great length and yourself to lay out the pathways, then what is considered nonsense is the thing that will save us. It's the thing that will be a bomb for all of these a lot of pain and misery, yes? And so for me, what are the things that make sense to me? The things that make sense to me are the things that where people say slavery is wrong, fascism is wrong. There's no such thing as being prematurely against fascists. That we need to think of a world in which we treat each other as equal, as friends and sisters and comrades and family, as kin, not as a target for... Disposability or to be harmed, to be discarded as waste, to be targeted for, for annihilation. So, I think at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves what makes sense to us? Is making sense to us where you have, you know, literally several dozen people owning the majority of the wealth in the world and where billions of people go to bed hungry every night? Or what makes more sense to us? is the idea in which, and people have always done this, share, we share. We don't hoard material. Materials are meant to sustain life, not to accumulate infinitely, right? So so it's all about what makes sense to us. And as a community of people and as including community of scholars, we have to decide and we have to help students think about the different way in which we make sense of the world. There is not a one way to make sense of the world. Um, and I think the moment in which we say we are superior because we make the most sense, that's where we get into this slippery slope to tyranny, to absolutism. That's what white supremacy looked like. White supremacy is the belief that there is an inherent superiority in one race and therefore the right to govern And everybody else are targeted for governing. And that doesn't make much sense to me.
2: You know, one of the things we've tried to do in the Portal Project, and HQ has been a real anchor for it, you know, is to kind of deal with the thorny and frayed edges of some of what we think and believe and want in the world. And something I think about a lot is who is the we? And, you know, when we say we have shared values, we know what's wrong. There is work still to do and consensus building to achieve in our own communities, in oppressed communities. So all black people aren't on the same page. All queer folks aren't on the same page. You know, communities that we may identify with that have been targeted by racial gender capitalism are also divided because part of what holds the violent and oppressive system together is not just the armed forces of the state, It's not just the military and the police. Uh, the carceral aspects of the state, but the cultural aspects of state violence, right? All of the ways in which we get mobilized to think that rich people having more than their share makes sense. That's one of the things capitalism tries to convince us of. And if we're being honest, it has succeeded in some ways, right? There's always this tension like, this is not right, but hey, you know, I don't necessarily want to end poverty, but I don't want to be poor, I think is kind of mindset that we hear sometimes. Or- Adoration for celebrities who are um, immersed in opulence and excess, you know, so when we think of the we and when we think of the struggle about, I would say, self-governing as an alternative to, you know, being governed. Um, how How do we among ourselves make rules that we can live together? Then we have to interrogate the we and we have to interrogate the ongoing violence of a dominant culture that gets under our skin. And I, you know, I mean, I think there are many, many projects. And of course, you know, cultural workers do this, but I think we all have to have that component to our work as well of how do we forge a we that can build the world that we want, that is not just the enemy, but it's also family and friends and kin where a struggle has to happen. So I don't know what you think about that.
3: Oh, no, I I think absolutely. I think one of the things I wanted to do, as I explained to some of my friends in the publishing world, in many ways, my book is a love letter to books and scholars and ideas. And I cite as many people as I could. And Tiffany actually taught me that. Tiffany, 20 years, 30 years ago, she tells me, you know we have to be intentional about who we cite. And I think that's really important. And so one of the things that I try to draw attention to are the various scholars who have helped me make sense of the hard questions that you're asking, Barbara, and you ask very hard questions, like, who are we? And one of the person's work I wanted to draw attention to in in this book was Andrew Jolivet's work. And Andrew Jolivet is just an amazing scholar And he proposed this idea of radical love as a research methodology, as a community building skills. And radical love begins with a very humble assumption that we don't know who we are all the time. We don't know what our community wants. We are not the same exactly as you're saying. And so that requires to be vulnerable to be vulnerable enough to say, we don't know, please tell us, please explain when we are in the community, when we do research, when we do scholarship. Because I think that one of the incredible gifts that Barbara has given us is, is this portal project where you, she build communities as Tiffany characterized, and not just a single, but like dozens of community all at once. And you know, it's like that film, Everything Everywhere, Oh, I want to say, like, there's these multiple communities uh, operating in multi-dimension at the same time. And one of, one of the gifts that I've received by being part of that is that we're constantly asking this question, how do we know what the future is, what are the things that we need to do? And we can't answer that unless we ask who we are and what it is that we want. And, and so one of the things that, and as you know, the book really centers on abolition feminism. And abolition feminism, I mean, operate at the assumption that, as Barbara suggests, we can't exclude. And there's a lot of risk in radically including people, precisely because we don't know. Precisely, it will make us vulnerable. And so I think about the love, and I, I know you if you know Langston Hughes work, you will know that mountains that take wing is a phrase coming out of his poem called Love. Again, people characterize, particularly black activism in this country with all sorts of terms. And Barbara is a historian, she's gonna teach us how some of the framing of emerge. But particularly those people who are frightful of black resistance and the black radical tradition rarely is it characterized the work that black people have done, black scholars, black activists, black community caretakers as love. But if you look at the scholarship, that's what this is about. It's about love for community, love for freedom, love for peace. And so This is why I love Andrew Zulovitz's framing of radical love as a way to think through how we must work with the difficult questions, with the difficult elements, with the difficult challenges in our community.
1: So I'm really glad you just um, got us to a place about uh, love for community and love for freedom because the particular historical time that we're in sees a really profound and violent trafficking in notions of love for freedom that are not just, they're just, you know, authoritarian. You know, notions of, of love, you know, when the former president, you know, Republican candidate basically makes a call for Lebensraum and um, incarcerating and jailing people there is a premise about love of particular type of community there and so i'm wondering if you might delve even a little bit deeper into the implications of barbara's question about who is the we and how we deal with the fact that for some people this we is very exclusive and you know even to go back to something that you said earlier that governance or legitimate governance is literally defined by being able to terrify and make people illiterate of other people, you know, that they're living with. So how do you make a distinction between the type of radical love in Levitt's work and this other type of call for a really turned inward, terrifying, kind of claim about power.
3: Yeah, one of the things that I've learned a lot from is reading through uh, Feminists of Colors' writing on reproductive justice. Because in the struggle to achieve reproductive freedom, and they, of course, appropriate the language and practice from the larger struggle for freedom, the independent movement, the third world movement, and particularly the indigenous justice movement for land sovereignty and self-determination, and they extend that practice to bodily autonomy. So when we hear language like bodily autonomy, bodily sovereignty, we understand that that comes out of radical traditions that demand for um, self-governance, right? Demand for self-sense of control. If we look at that movement, the history of that movement, as Loretta Ross taught us, Dorothy Roberts, again, a series of black feminist scholars. What we learn is that this come out of a struggle against tyranny, very big tyranny. We are talking about slavery, settler colonialism, and genocide, and that tyranny's intent was to annihilate any sense of self autonomy. Meanwhile, in the name of liberty and freedom, but very singularly wedded to the individual. So what you have is on the one hand, the empty rhetoric of individual and freedom. So even in the idea of reproductive rights, it's a very singular, you know, narrow frame. Whereas if you look at women of color struggle for reproductive justice, there's always a sense of a larger community well-being and it's a very different kind of discourse. And so this is why I juxtaposed the Zapatista philosophy of a world where many world fits, that, that presupposes a very radical um, inclusive praxis to the nation state, to uh, white supremacy, to absolutism, where this notion that who can belong is who fit the dominant paradigm. And it's very much wedded to the individual as opposed to community. Now, we see some debate around gender, for instance, where it's an extraordinary kind of of debate, but it's a distracting debate. I think the trans activists of color, I think, you know, what they are asking us to do is to think about radically inclusive praxis where the reality is if gender is really indeed fluid, then we don't yet know what things may become. Like what Angela Davis said, the moment in which you name something, you've already foreclosed possibility of other things. Does that make sense? And so uh, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, abolition feminism is so capacious. We think not individual, not even community, but not like ecology. I mean, if you think about ecology, that's like really big. The only thing that's bigger than ecology is planetary. You know what I mean? And up until this point, we've only been asked to think of individual and very singular community uh, and nation state. We haven't really been demanded in at least mainstream academic discourse to think broader than that. And, and so the environmental justice movement, the indigenous land sovereignty movement, the reproductive justice movement, the movements for black lives, these movements, these emergent and ongoing movements are demanding that we think broader and we can. I, mean, I think we're capable of doing that.
2: I think I'm also reminded with Tiffany's question and, and your response, when you said that, when you you know you were kind of going talking about problematizing how love and freedom are are used, and I was thinking you know boy capitalism can co-opt the rock because you can take a concept yes. and a word like love, deploy it and yes. weaponize it because I think of when people say I love my country, basically they often are saying I will go and fight and justify the bombing of other people in preservation of that which I say I love, right. Love becomes a justification that's right. that's for death, right. for war. That's a worrisome notion, but uh, you know, certainly worn out by history.
3: So in your work, particularly the three book projects that you have, right? You are looking at and, and earlier Tiffany talked about the invisible labor that's done by scholars. And I think about the women that you wrote about. And how much education they did in terms of training, part of their care work in the community. They trained several generations of activists and scholars. And that's part of our legacy, right? That's part of our genealogy. Isn't that love? Yeah. And what draw you to that work? Because your work is also love. I I teach your book both to first-year students as well as to graduate students. And it's interesting because there's so much depth but at the same time, the first, second year student, they don't have any problem with the work. You know, in fact, they really dig the history. Like the history is very lively to them. So why do you think that work is so meaningful to us, especially the range of people?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a big question in a way because I could go into it in a lot of different ways. You know, when we say people's work has been invisible it is not actually always invisible, is it? it, it people, know it's, it's, it's devalued. That's right. <laughs> it's really invisible. And I think those of us who see it, who see ourselves, our mothers, our sisters, our comrades, our daughters doing that work also have an urge to want it to be valued at least by us. So in some ways, that was my motivation with Ella Baker, my motivation with uh, Islanda, my motivation with talking about the young feminist in the movement for black lives. But it's not just value in terms of recognition. I will say for me as a biographer, is an enormously humbling process to wade into someone else's life and to love your subject at the other end of it. Like Ella Baker made some decisions I would not have made, okay? Right. Um, as she persevered, I think when I would have said, I'm done. And certainly, Islanda made both political decisions that I would very much disagree with. And as much as we love and adore the icon Paul Robeson, I'd have been out of that relationship, too. But how do you then look at a human being that close up in complexity? And, and, you know, across the divide of being living and dead, right? Different times. How do you look at somebody's life in all that intimacy? I read her diaries. I read letters that Ella Baker wrote to other people, private letters. So you're a bit of a voyeur and you're intimately taking a glimpse into these women's lives. To come out and to love them on the other end of that, right, with all the messiness of it, of a life, if everybody read all my stuff, right, Uh, to me is an abolitionist praxis because the biggest thing, and I, I am an abolitionist. I want to abolish the carceral state, but I also... Feel like we always have to, something has to go with that because what gets dropped off when we say abolition is the building part. That's right. Which, if you listen to any of our brilliant abolitionists, including you, a minute after people say abolish, they say build, right? We're not just mm-hmm. talking about get rid of everything and not have anything. We want something different. And yeah. what exists now is standing in the way of that. But the thing I take away from abolition is this question of love. You know, you've taught in mm-hmm prisons in Arizona, and I've taught at Stateville Prison here. And uh, there's a brother, I won't say his name, but somebody who's come to be a friend who, um, you know, killed a number of people, not just one person, not accidentally, deliberately killed people. That's causing harm. That's serious stuff.
3: That's right.
2: Now, how do you walk through that and hear that human being's journey and love them on the other end of it? To me, that's radical love. And that's what abolition calls us into because it says no one gets thrown. I'm, I feel like I'm preaching now, but
3: no, I'm uh, so glad you uh, no brought that
2: up under the bus. No one gets abandoned. No one is no longer in the realm of humanity because of something they've done. And it doesn't mean that they're not accountable for doing something. I don't want us to be the shock absorbers because we know who's going to be the shock absorbers if there's any shock absorbers and it's us. So I'm not saying do harm to whoever is vulnerable with impunity but that we don't cast those people out.
3: I'm so glad you bring that up because I think that's without love, you cannot have transformative justice. Without radical love, you cannot have transformative justice. And we want transformative justice because what we have learned up until this point is that punitive justice, criminal justice, whatever other form of justice we're learning and and operating under is not working. We have too many members of our communities that are harmed. And so we need radical love to move to transformative justice. Again, I'm always so envious of folks like you who write about people. I feel like I write about institutions. You write about people. <laughs> I feel like I write about institutions and ideas. So that's why I'm asking you because I want to learn. Like because I imagine it's harder. At one level, because there can be some distance when we talk about institutions and ideas. Whereas, as you said, you know, you read someone's diaries and you look into someone's lives. That's heavy duty stuff. Well,
2: you know, I like, something, you, know it, it, you know, I guess the thing I often say is, you know, extraordinary people do ordinary things like extraordinary people who we want to put on a pedestal do petty yeah. shit. And then people who you might think of ordinary, who by every indicator of life, you know, are just just an ordinary person, can do extraordinary things that shift the tide of history. So to me, that's what getting into someone's life helps us to do, to be better people and organizers ourselves at the other end of it. But, you know, we could also pull you in, Tiffany, we can cue you up about South Africa. I would love, because that's, when I first heard the term ungovernability, it was in the context of the anti-apartheid movement and the uprising of the right. yeah. uh, where they said, we will make this country ungovernable. And I was like, yeah. ungovernable, okay. Yeah. I had yeah. I sat with that, you know, so I, I began thinking about it at that time. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to be able to do a couple things in this moment, but the first is actually to talk about the way that celebrity gets forgiven. We have been taught how to be obsessed with, not holding people who are really extraordinary and have all this like ability to captivate the media waves and to be in our faces all the time. Like there is no forgiveness. And so celebrity becomes the medium or the vector through which we can not penalize people. Right. But instead like hold them up and give them all the accolades and all the attention and It's so funny to me because a person like Elon Musk or Rudy Giuliani can make statements that are public statements that insist on the murder of other people. And we are able to suspend the punitive response and instead focus on their capacity for building. Um, and what it is that they're building and whether they're building a conservative movement or whether they're building authoritarianism or whether they're building Laban's realm in Hungary. Like some, for some reason we can suspend the punitive at one level and then not suspend the punitive for other folks. And so that's something that always I think that distinction always sits heavy with me around my own thinking in abolitionism, my own sightedness in that. So what I want to say about ungovernability years ago, I read a book that Matt Sycamore, it's like a very small book called that's revolting. And it's a collection of essays about assimilation and accommodationism and learning how to fit in and how dangerous it is. And there were really important warnings in that book that I'm not sure as a person, I really internalized in the ways that I really needed to. And so what that means in terms of a place like South Africa, like the work that I'm doing right now is trying to explain both why it is that people were so shocked and surprised by the protests that showed up as you know, total shutdown against rape and roads must fall and fees must fall. And I'm arguing that really all they were doing is trying to pick up the things that a neoliberal government And, you know, recognition of a mythological bloodless revolution, they're resurfacing things that basically got traded away in order for the state in Southern Africa to no longer be an apartheid society, while still continuing to be an apartheid society.
3: So like essentially the failure of
1: abolition democracy. Well... It's not even so much a failure. It's like a kind of getting trapped in the celebrity because not even having the, this is going to sound really judgmental, but forgive my forgive my tongue for not having words that are more compassionate enough because um, it's not where my heart is, but not having the courage to stand on the things that Chris Hani or Winnie Mandela said. Mm -hmm. And instead Mm -hmm. being willing to say, you know, we as movement makers that shifted how people think about colonialism on the planet, right. Saying we can cut a deal. That's right. And that it's that, that cutting a deal piece. I don't have a judgment about it because people have to survive. Right. But what it does is it requires us to believe that the next generation doesn't have anything to fight for, right? You know, I can't give you your freedom. You know, Islanda couldn't give people their freedom. She could train and offer them analytics for thinking on a planetary scale about their freedom. Um, Ella Baker could give people analytics and tools for listening to their own still small voice, Mm -hmm. but couldn't somehow Protect them from having to fight against authoritarian, you know, gendered racial capitalism. It is the condition. And so every generation has to be invested in unfolding their own commitments and struggling, you know, at a spiritual and ancestral level with the desire for people to make them into nonsense and to define governance and good order making most of the planet into knots. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, It's remarkable because I was just talking to a mutual friend, Abebe Zagie, recently, and next year, it will be 30 years since the collapse of the apartheid regime. And in 30 years, so many hopes have gone by the wayside. I mean, for me, you know, I remember when uh, someone like George Soros was added to the advisory, Economic Advisory Committee, (laughs) and you say, what future are we going to have when we ask neoliberals and capitalists, global financiers, to be part of the conversation about the future of the new South Africa? Because, of course, South Africa is an extraordinary experiment, right? Really, in many ways, with the exception of Haiti, is one of the few nations that have successfully overthrown a racial apartheid regime, right? Where the majority people won the machination of, of governing. So that's why I was asking if, if you think this is sort of in many way Du Bois critique of reconstruction, right? Like our missed opportunity to establish an abolition democracy and we didn't succeed.
1: This is why I keep focusing on this thing about celebrity yeah. and the way yeah. that it can really not just distract but it can displace.
3: Yeah. You know,
1: the naming of an entire generation born freeze. It's a mistranslation of a Sutu name that means I meant for you to be free. Hmm. Saying I meant for you to be free is more like become ungovernable. It's a process of becoming. That's right. It's a conversation across generations. Saying you're born free, it's like a category on a form, an immigration form that you can check off, right? Are you free or not? You're born free, and so therefore you inherit all of this stuff. But we know that property and masters are contrived and constructed and can always be disentangled and broken, right? The four of memory is all about how fragile ownership and mastery and expertise is, right? So they constantly have to be rebuilding, rebuilding, telling the same plagiarized story over and over and over again. But what you offer us in Become Ungovernable is this like close retelling of Western philosophies of governance that empowers us to use them as opposed to requiring us just to be in uh, kind of celebrity mode. I, I don't know how you all experience political theory, but undergraduate courses in political theory are still largely taught like Instagram,
3: you That's know, right.
1: <laughs> like learn this Instagram dance. Yeah, you know? no, it's
3: true. I mean, exactly. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it is totally true. Like the, it is a celebrity studies, right? So all oh, the greats, and, and we're supposed to mimic them. But, you know, it's, it's remarkable in many ways about South Africa because there are so many South Africans. And so one of the areas in the book I sort of dip my toes in is China. And one of the things that really bothered me about Chinese studies in the West in many ways, and I should say I don't read Chinese, so I'm very disadvantaged at, at that level, but, you know, I tell myself, you know, theological studies, people primarily reading the Bible and all of these great books in second language anyway. And if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, now I very few people I know read ancient Hebrew anyway. So so that's that's how I do it. But it's it's remarkable because most of the study is either anti communist, very fearful, at the level of paranoia, and at another level is really dismissive and it's not just unique to chinese study it is unique to i think global south study unless they are rise to the level of anti-stemic structural like nearly revolutionary movement we don't pay attention but it is the everyday struggles against particularly the regime of precarious living on the subsistence margin and in workplaces that are really quite extraordinary. And they tell us a lot of things, not only about the system, but they also may be teaching us how to be free, how to become free. You know what I mean? And so they're teaching us a lot about how to operate in a fairly closed political system and how to push the radical agenda about living with dignity. And, and living with, with self-governance. And in that way, this is why I also look to communities in this country, so Black community, migrant community, Indigenous community, for lessons, because it is in these spaces that people have demonstrated extraordinary resourcefulness in how, how we what we can learn to, to survive in these times.
1: I mean, the only thing I'll say is that, you know, HQ... This book is the perfect and kind of hopeful way of closing a trilogy of works that started with Savage de- Developmentalism in the Modern World and Cedric Robinson on Racial Capitalism, Black Internationalism and Cultures of Resistance. The possibility, as you have already said, you know, I've, I've heard you say on panels so many times, um, We haven't yet tried democracy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We haven't haven't even tried it yet. We haven't. We haven't.
1: Um, I think of become ungovernable as being just a perfect way of closing a kind of sound cycle of three books that have been trying to trace the challenges of living under deeply internalized tyrannical notions about order. And so this is a really welcome contribution.
2: Thank you. Well said. I think it also is extremely, extremely timely as we see fascism looming, as we see another level of tyranny knocking at the door uh, in this country and around the world. Your challenge and provocations uh, and insights uh, will be invaluable.
3: I feel so very privileged to be in conversation with you, Barbara and Tiffany. I mean it when I said I had good teachers. I have very, very good teachers. Um, And your work are are meaningful to me because what they do is that they made my life, and I know so many others' lives, as scholars and as students, especially students of history, so much easier. Our task would have been impossible without the guardrails that you lay out, right? You point us to the direction. I remember Cedric Robinson taught me years ago, he said, you know, you don't have to think very hard. You just have to be a good student, And inevitably, you will stumble into areas because there are other people that have done some of this work and you just have to pay attention. And I'm grateful that I pay attention, particularly to the two of you. Your work on wealth, your work on freedom struggles, on the ordinary people, not just the extraordinary people, but the ordinary people that do extraordinary things that make my life possible. So thank you.
0: That was HLT Kwan, Barbara Ransby and Tiffany Willoughby-Hirard on Radicals in Conversation. I'd like to extend my thanks to all of them for coming on the show, especially over the holidays, and particularly to Tiffany for guest facilitating this conversation. Become Ungovernable, an abolitionist ethic for democratic living, is out now from Pluto Press. Podcast listeners can get 40% off. Simply use the coupon PODCAST at the checkout on plutobooks.com within the next month. We'll be back in March with our next episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.